St. Warburg's Derby. Um, my name is Phil, for those of you who don't know me, um, and I'm Andy's boss. So uh, that's who I am. Now, um, I need to ask a favour this evening, just before we get to the sermon and we get to kind of expand the Bible. Um, I've been looking at a few other church leaders' social media profile, their positions in social media, and I realised that I've got a bit of a problem, and um, basically I don't have many followers. So um, if you could take your phones out, if you're on Instagram, um, I am at RevPhilMan, and uh, I'd really appreciate if we could just get my numbers up a little bit. It would just um, be really helpful for me. And to help us with this, I'm just going to take this quick photo. So I'll post something and you guys can all be in it and um, we can all tag ourselves and, and post it and retweet it and like it and stuff. Some of you are finding this funny. Some of you are looking at me to say this is weird. This is important. This is an important moment. So, um, all right, let's see if we can do this. Uh, And, I mean, the problem, the slight problem, is Andy Bond is in that photo, um, pointing for some bizarre reason. I've got a big head. Right, I'm not happy with that one. Let's do a different one. Um, can, you, can you do something? Make it look a little bit more interesting. Can you... Um... Oh, man. I mean, the main problem is I've got a massive head. Um, this will look better. This will work. Okay, come on. Get the leather jacket on. And now I look like a real midlife crisis kind of guy. And, um, but like a proper church leader, preacher guy. Okay, are you in it? Everyone happy? Now, I did this this morning. And just to say, I got about 20 extra followers from the morning service. So we're hoping that the evening service can do better than that. And you may have even seen the post that I put out if you're already following me. That has had a few likes. So we need to, again, this is all about building my ego, getting my numbers up. So at RevPhilMan, I can't stress that piece enough, um, at RevPhilMan, like it, retweet it, or do whatever you need to do to it. Um, see if my numbers can go up. We live in a bizarre world where that is now normal. What I've just done is normal behavior. We live in a world where we snap, we don't like it, we delete, we re-snap, we filter, we possibly adapt slightly and maybe post. And once we've posted it, we live in a world where actually what's important our numbers. How many people like what I've posted? How many people follow what I'm doing? Genuinely, at Man, it really does mean a lot to me. But we live in a world where that, I'm going to take this off, where that is actually normal behavior. We are living in a world that is messed up when it comes to image and identity. That we now get our security, our identity, our comfort almost, from how many people like our tweets. We've got to live in our image-based 
world, where we've got to look the right way. We've got to be the right type of person. And we've got to allow other people's opinions of ourselves to boost our ego. We are such an individualistic society. We have changed. We've allowed consumerism to adapt what we feel is our identity and our, ident- our image. Where it used to be that we'd get our identity out of where we were from or whose family we were part of or our culture or our nationality or the village that we grew up in. Nowadays, we get it through our consumer power. Our consumer power is our spending. It's our financial base. So if we don't like our image, we can just change it. We'll buy something different. We'll buy a new leather jacket if we think that that's cool, which I tend to. But you may disagree. We grow a beard and get small round glasses because we want to look cool and people to like us. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good. Please hear me right. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good. But when our identity gets messed up, when our whole understanding of who our, what our image is and what we find our, where we find our self-confidence and self-worth is that in, in what we look like and what other people think of us, we've got a major, major problem. And of course, this leads to a lack of freedom. It leads to being kind of confined and constrained by what we think society says we have to be and do. So much so that we now idolize programs like Love Island. I know I'm, gonna, I'm about to go into a rant and sound like a middle-aged grumpy man, but come on, people. We look at that and we think, okay, we've got to look like those people. We've got to be like them and we forget how much pain and money has gone on to get the bodies and the figures that they've already got. And so we think if we're not like that, we're not good enough. We're not cool enough. We're not sexy enough. Because that's where we base our identity. And don't even get me started about Naked Attraction. That is an absolutely hideous program and none of you should be watching it. I think and I believe that every single one of us, I don't know where you are on your journey of faith whether you would call yourself a Christian and have been doing this for years, or whether you're brand new to this, or you're still just exploring it, I believe every single one of us wants to live a happy, content, secure life. We all do. It's human nature. We want that. We want to live free. We want to be content and happy, and yet we are confined confounded, confined by what society dictates to us. And so if we don't think that we are cool enough, sexy enough, glamorous enough, we end up with all sorts of challenges. We have seen and we know that there is an anxiety epidemic sweeping through our nation. We know that there are people who are struggling with body image issues. Plastic surgery is through the roof. I saw a thing on the TV the other day about a guy, a doctor, who has created the perfect wife. Which, just the idea of it, leads me to want to make lots of jokes, but he, it was his second wife. He was already married. This woman came to him. He was a plastic surgeon, and he took this lady and did so much surgery to her poor body to get her to be the perfect look. We are messed up. We are in all sorts of problems when that has become our cultural norm. And the premise 
for our new series that we're going to spend the next, I don't know how many weeks looking at, is your image and your identity does not come from what other people think of you. It does not mean that you have to be cool, sexy, and glamorous. Your image and your identity comes from the fact that you are a child of God. You are a child of God. And so we're going to spend, as I said, the next number of weeks digging into that, looking into that, trying to work out what that actually means, how it works in our lives. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into Scripture. Loving Father, we, we're in a mess. As a society, we're in a mess. We've allowed superficial things to shape our image and our identity. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and do a work in us through these next few weeks that changes our hearts, changes our life, allows us to live free, content, secure, because we know that we are a child of you and that is where we find our identity and our image. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll speak to us, you'll lead us and guide us through this and change our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump into the book of Job. And uh, the book of Job is uh, a story in the Old Testament. It's um, thought of as kind of one of the uh, oldest books in the whole of the scripture in the Old Testament. It was because it was this story that was kind of passed down the generations orally. It was spoken from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And, and scholars have a problem, a bit of a problem with this book because they don't quite know how to define it. What's, what type of literature is it? Some people define it as history. Some define it as story. Some define it as poetry. And it's a kind of mix of the three of this, this incredible encounter that happens to this man, Job. He um, was a wealthy man, married, lots of kids, had um, lots of land and cattle and sheep and camels, and that's how they kind of measured wealth back in those days. And he was a wealthy, successful man. And then all of that got taken away from him. All his cattle and camels and sheep were killed or taken or stolen. His children were wiped out, and he was left suffering, left grieving, left with his whole world turned upside down. And so as you do at that kind of point, his, his mates gathered around him and they were trying to comfort him. They were trying to care for him. They were trying to give him words of encouragement. And so they spoke some stuff over him. But it just made the situation worse. And if you read Job, it goes on for a number of chapters. It feels like it really drags on. And you have this dialogue between these friends who kind of critique him and ask him stuff and say, well, surely this is your fault. It's, you've sinned in some way and therefore your sin has caused these problems. And Job is like, no. No, that's not the situation. Your wisdom is not helping. It doesn't get to the truth of the matter. It doesn't help or comfort me. And so Job kind of, I mean, he never blames God, but he questions, like, he questions grief and he questions pain and he questions what is fair for him. 
And this argument goes round and round and round. And Job's kind of saying, look, I'm innocent, God. This is not my fault, but, but this is not right. Why is this as it is? And eventually, in chapter 38 of the book, God speaks. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this evening. So if you've got Bibles, open to Job chapter 38. Otherwise, it's going to come up on the screens. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Before we move on, this is a really fascinating piece here. The word storm, the Hebrew word for storm here, can be shira, I think it's pronounced, can be translated whirlwind or chaos. It's like God is speaking out of turmoil, like a mixture of light and darkness and wind and rain, and out of that storm, God speaks. And if I may be so bold, I think where we are with our image and identity crisis we are carrying a storm, a whirlwind, turmoil, chaos. We've allowed certain things to be spoken over us or labels to be given to us. And we've said that this is who I am. I am shy. I am extrovert. I am grieving. I am suffering. I am victim. I am cancer sufferer. I am divorcee. I am not cool enough, not clever enough. We have these things that have been spoken over us or we've allowed to take on ourselves. And in the midst of that, they are the storm. And for Job, his suffering was the storm. And then God spoke. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. This may not be the comforting words that you are longing to hear at this point. Brace yourself, because this is going to get messy. God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Like one of those new gadgets on the iPhone that you can measure how far things are, how long things are, big things are. Can you measure the dimensions of the earth? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Who do you think you are? Are the words, in essence, that God speaks to Job. In the midst of his storm, You might want this comfort. You might want this, yeah, there, pat you on the back. Everything's lovely. But God says, come on, who do you think you are? We have a friend um, who used to help us in a church we worked at with some of our youth work. He was called Arthur. Oh, he is called. He wasn't used to be. He is still called Arthur Norman Walker. That was his surname was Norman Walker. It wasn't a middle name. That was Arthur Norman Walker. And um, he was a major in the army. So he was Major Arthur Norman Walker. So he um, was quite a posh name. And we used to make fun of him quite a lot. But when he was hanging out with our young people, if any of the young people kind of mucks around or did stuff, he would look at them and he would just go, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? 
And it's almost like God is saying that to Job at this point. Do you know who I am? You come at me in the midst of this with all your storm and your questions. And God's saying, hang, hang on. Hang on one moment. In Isaiah, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Who do you think you are? God is right-sizing us. He's getting us to see perspective. A number of years ago, um, Billy Connolly, who is a um, comedy genius, did one of his tours around Australia. And I remember seeing an episode where he, um, he went out to the, the rabbit fence that goes across the whole of Australia because they had a problem with myxomatosis or whatever that illness is. So they had to separate the rabbits, I think, from the north, from the south, rather than, or the east, from the, I can't remember. Anyway, it's a huge, huge chain-link fence that goes on for miles and miles and miles. And Billy Connolly stood in a moment, and you kind of the camera just panned out. And over the top of this kind of piece where Billy has stood there, you get the, him saying, every politician should come here because this is the most humbling thing in the world. You realize how big the world is and how small he is. And at this point, God is saying to Job, who do you think you are? Let's right-size you for a moment. Because... When we look at ourselves first, we lose perspective. In Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 10, in the message version of Matthew chapter 10, we read this. It says, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. If your first concern is to look at yourself if your first concern is to look at your selfie, then you've lost it. But if you forget about yourself and don't look to yourself but look to God, then you will find him. You will find him and you'll also find yourself. You'll find contentment. You'll find relationship. You'll find identity. And so let's spend the next few moments thinking about who God is and looking at him so we right-size ourselves. So the first thing we learn and we pick up from this passage in Job is that God is creator. He is the one who has created everything, the universe and everything in it. He made it. And so when we look at him, we see that and we realize that it wasn't about us. God is creator. God is also infinite. To be creator, you have to be outside of what is created. He has made everything. He is bigger than we can possibly ever imagine or understand. Because he put it in place. He is self-existing. He is without origin. A.W. Tozer says this. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be diminished with a name, who will not appear before the bar of reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess, so we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage 
him. God is infinite. Colossians 1 says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God is creator. God is infinite. God is all-powerful, strong and mighty. There is nothing too difficult for our God. He can do the impossible, as Scripture tells us. He is creator. He is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And he is always present. Psalm 139 says, You have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. He knows everything. And it also goes on to say, that you, there, Where can I flee from your spirit? There, he is always present. We cannot outrun him or hide from him. He is creator. He is infinite. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, always present. God is wise. He is wisdom himself. He is faithful and true and trustworthy. God is just. Deuteronomy 32. His work is perfect for his ways are just. He is merciful. He is gracious. Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and rich in love. God is good. Oh, taste and see. That God is good. God is holy. He is other. He is set apart. He is not tainted by sin. He is other than. Holy is the Lord Almighty. God is immutable. In other words, he never changes. In Malachi, he says this, I, the Lord, do not change. And in Hebrews, we read, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is creator. He is infinite. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, always present. He is wisdom. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is good. He is holy. He never changes. And God is love. 1 John 4, that is who he is, that is his nature, that is his very being. And he is your father. When you look first at yourself, you'll lose yourself. But when you look at him, you'll find yourself and you will find him. Our identity It's not so much anymore about who I am, it's about whose I am. And so when we shift our view from thinking about ourselves and looking at us to looking at God, we see who he really is, we right-size ourselves and we right-size who he is, and we find ourselves in the midst of that. If we go back to taking a selfie, I'm looking at me until I change my view And then all I can see is the cross. We need to stop looking at ourselves. And we need to look to him. If we want to find out who we really are. That's our identity. And that's what we're going to spend the next six or seven weeks working out and getting to grips with.